The reading is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. This is page 1041 in the Church Bibles. The Parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave, him, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Adrian, very much. Good morning. It's a lovely day, isn't it? Oh my goodness me. Have you been out today? It's lovely out there. It's gorgeous. And uh, th this, this incredible story. Do you know there are, there are three roads uh, today from Jerusalem to Jericho? There's the dual carriageway, uh, which takes you right down into the Jordan Valley. And there's an inn of the Good Samaritan. You can drop off for a coffee. Um, and it's one of the biggest tourist traps in Israel. There's a road that winds its way through on tarmac through the Judean desert. And there are big valleys, there's a monastery, and there's all sorts of things that you can see on that road. And then there is a track that 
kind of goes straight through the mountains or the uplands of the Judean desert. And we think that's probably the one that Jesus is talking about. So when you picture this in your mind, you're talking about the sort of track you might walk along in the country rather than, you know, the Southampton Avenue. Uh, We're not talking about roads like that. That's what we're doing. And we're in very familiar territory, aren't we, here? Uh, Most of you probably know that story backwards. You could have told it yourself. And uh, we need to understand, therefore, what is, what is God saying? It's a very familiar phrase, a good Samaritan. My, mother, my mother-in-law used to say to me, Dave, be a good Samaritan, which usually meant change a light bulb. Um, you know, it was that kind, of, you know, that kind of gesture. And she said, oh, be a good, you do a good deed, Dave. You know, and I always did, of course. Now, the story is very simple at one level. It's a very simple story. And Jesus usually, in parables, wanted to communicate one simple meaning from the story. We overcomplicate parables at our peril. If you got the idea, you understood what Jesus was saying. You got it. And Jesus teaches elsewhere, doesn't he, that sometimes people just get parables and other people go, what? What's that about? Don't understand it. Don't get it. And parables were divisive. Sometimes people said, yes, I see what you're saying, Jesus. And other times people said, don't get that at all. And it's still true to say, today, isn't it? People don't get it. They don't understand. Now, the story is simple. Man gets set upon, beaten up. Two guys walk past, one stops. But all he can do, uh, what can he do with a man who's been mugged and been put by the side of the road to, to die? Well, he puts him on his horse and he takes him, on his donkey, sorry, um, and takes him to the nearest inn. Now, does that mean... But if we happen to come across a guy in the gutter, bleeding to death, we find a horse, get it, and take him to the nearest pub. That's the bad way to deal with parables. That's not how we should treat them. We need to look at what Jesus was trying to communicate here. And the best way with parables, if you can do it, is to look at the beginning and the end. And if you see what starts the story on one occasion... An expert of the law comes to test Jesus. He's trying to trick him. That's the context. A lawyer comes. He knows the law. He knows the scriptures. He doesn't want to learn and listen. He wants to catch Jesus out. And Jesus seems to excel. A number of times, if you want to study, do this for yourself sometime. The number of times he turns tricky questions to say, hey, Forget about the tricky question. Go and live like this. He just does it. And he turns it round on people and say, don't come to me with tricky questions. Go home and live like you should. And I think that's what this parable's about. It, it isn't about, you know, learned theology in one sense, although we can delve into it. It's about Jesus saying, well, teacher of the law, you've come to me with this question, but I want to tell you something much more profound. I want to teach you how to live. And Jesus wanted to talk about real issues. The man wanted to follow the trend of the time, which was to engage in learned debate. And uh, there would always be a winner. Very Greek, very Hellenistic. Let's have a, a battle of wills and minds, and at the end of it, somebody wins. It's not what Jesus is after. He's after transformation. He's after life change. He's after changing this man into something that he isn't at the moment. But his question is wrong anyway. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you don't do things. 
you have exercised faith to come into the kingdom of God. So the question is wrong in the first place. And what the Old Testament often talked about, Daniel 12, 2, offers the promise of eternal life, but only to some. And he would have known this. He was a teacher of the law. Deuteronomy 12, 2 says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, if he knew that scripture, and he almost certainly did, then what he was asking is, what is the difference between those who inherit eternal life and those who don't? In other words, there is a division. This is not universalism. Christianity never is. It's always about those who inherit the kingdom and those who don't. So everlasting life was not for everyone. And the lawyer is asking, really, who is it for? Now, in Old Testament terms, it was for the righteous. It was for those who obeyed and served God, those whose lives reflected the love of God and wanted to serve others. So Jesus tells him just that statement. It's up here for your benefit, Deuteronomy 6.5. It's on our new posters or banners. Banners, aren't they? Not posters. That's better. And he calls on the nation, um, as it were, to love God in every way. And the man actually says this. He knows it. Look at it. He says, he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, how many alls are there in there? This man knows it. He knows that one of the key things to being a follower of, of the Lord is to be someone who does everything to the all level. All your heart, all your mind, all your strength. You're bent double to do what God wants. You don't hold back. And he knows it. He knows exactly what that's about. He knows what it means to be fully committed with your heart emotionally, physically, all your actions, mentally, what you think. Now, before we go any further, could I say that's what I do? I'm not sure. But my body is bent on doing things which please God. I want to think only the thoughts that God would have me think which rules out, by the way, thinking ill of anybody. Anybody. So we are committed to the all concept, that our minds, our emotions, are committed to always think good of others. I walked off, you've heard me say this before, but it's something that haunts me, it comes back to me over and over again. We were on the Mount of Beatitudes, as it's called, in Israel. And my Jewish guide, Mikhail, lovely man, delightful guy, tank commander, six months, Jewish guide, six months. And he grabbed hold of my arm, and I just read Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. And he grabbed my arm and he said, Dave, if you Christians live that, you'd change the world. I have never forgotten that moment. I could take you exactly to the spot where he said it to me. And, and that's the all idea, isn't it? And, and we mustn't get on to the neighbor bit before we realize that what God is asking of us today is to express as this teacher of the law did. He knew it. 
that he must express is, is total devotion to God. There's no room in this statement for part disciples, for part timers. The way we live, the way we move, the way we relate, the way we care, the way we do everything we do. Body, mind, heart, and will obeying his commands. But this, for the lawyer, is not enough. He's confused. It can never simply be about yourself. And Jesus is pushing him this way, you see. Love the Lord your God, yes, that allows you to be at peace with your own self because all your security is in God. Now, Jesus says, come on, what about the neighbor thing? Let that love be shown to your neighbor. As James puts it, faith without works is dead. If we really love God, we cannot but reflect that love in compassion to our world. And the tricky lawyer does not want this answer. And so he says, well, who is my neighbor? He's really saying, have I done this? Isn't this good enough to, to do what those banners behind me say? Isn't, isn't that okay? Who is my neighbor? Now, at one simple level, um, it, it's the person who lives over your fence, isn't it? That's the way we use the word neighbor. The person you chat to either side. Hello, how are you? Yes, how's your garden? Talk a lot more in the summer, don't we? When we mow the lawns and hi, good to see you, or whatever. Is that what he means? I don't think so. Let's try and put the context here, and I think we'll begin to understand what Jesus is saying. This robe was notorious. You know, it's a bit like saying, um, when I used to work here, I used to enjoy the uh, daily trip up the M3, and often I'd roll in here late and say, oh, I've been caught by the M3 again. And you say the M3 is blocked, you know, everybody says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is exactly this road here. This was a notorious road. It was a shocking road. People died on it regularly. Rather a windy road that went through these deep valleys and caves where you could hide. It was an accident black spot, if you like. So we have an extreme example here. And then we have put onto that context of this rough, sort of in-the-country kind of rocky road. We have righteous men. Priests and Levites. Now, I'm in danger of parodying this, so forgive me if I do. But these, these people just sort of say, well, we couldn't possibly. No. Oh, look at that dirty, horrible man. Now, these guys were, were righteous, religious leaders. These were the men who should have known the word and put it into action. They were at the heart of temple worship. They offered daily sacrifice. They, did, they were part of the religious establishment. And the two men here were men who read God's word every day. And they sang psalms to God and they were seen to be religious. They would have known these words so well. And when faced with a human need, which God's law said everyone should meet, they walked by. Ugh, couldn't possibly. I don't know how you find that. Every time I read this story, I think, Lord, I wish you hadn't written this. Because it challenges me to think about who I walk by. And, and I don't want you to go home guilt-ridden. What I want you to do is to go home with one name in your head. I will not walk by that person anymore. And I've done it. I've done it in ministry. I've done it times when I think I shouldn't have done it. I should have done something about it. The busyness of life, I've used it as an excuse, maybe. 
and I've walked by another human being who has a need. And that's what this is about. Don't try and dress parables up in ways that, you know, over-theologize them. This is about just looking at what's around you. The word and life had become separate to these two men. The word had not penetrated the heart and the soul of these two men. Otherwise, they would have stopped. And as soon as we become either absolutely obsessed just by looking at the word and studying it, understanding it, and it doesn't affect the way we live, we've lost the plot. We have lost the plot. And this challenges you to say, okay, when, when life and word become separate, please, Lord, drive something into my heart that says, care, look, pray, wonder if you could. Let's just look around me. I've told the story more than once here, I think, about the time I traveled from Sheffield to London I was an incredibly important trustee of the Keswick Convention at the time. You know, I really was the most important guy on the planet. And this guy got on the train at Leicester. And I had a big document. We were about to spend a lot of money at Keswick to develop it. And I had to be brief for the meeting. You know how it is. And this guy came in Leicester. And he sat opposite the table. And he said, you're one of them, aren't you? And I thought, oh, no, give me a break. You know, I, I just don't need this. I've got to read all these papers. I've got to get sussed on this whole project. I, I haven't had time to do it. And he wouldn't let it go. And in the end, I had to say, Lord, okay, what's that about? And we had a conversation. At the end of it, I said, look, I'd love to meet up again. He walked out of that arch, which is now part of the Eurostar terminal. I was there the other day. And I've never forgotten the sight of that guy going out of there, thinking, did he find eternal life? I don't know. But I had to forget that I was the most important trustee on the Keswick Council that moment and engage with a man who wanted to hear about Jesus. Friends, where's that for you? And I'm, I'm not asking you, you, you go up and down the road and knock on every door and you know, have 25 appointments before tomorrow. I'm not, I'm not saying that to you, but I think this who is my neighbor question is it, something about a compassion for those in need. It, it's about where you look for that. It's God's command to go into our world and make disciples and men and women bemused by where we are at the moment. I think we have a brilliant opportunity at the moment to go this way, haven't we? With so much confusion. I was in London the other day and walked past all the Brexiteer campaigners outside the Parliament and there were people shouting this and shouting that and, and there was a man sat in a sleeping bag behind them and nobody was taking a blind bit of notice of him. What, what's it about for you and... There are commands, aren't there, in places like 1 Peter 5 to care for the flock. And what does that mean? The tricky lawyer thought he had to follow some kind of ritual. Jesus told him he needed to love God and you need to open his eyes. As I heard one great preacher say once, and I love this, go out and buy yourself a new set of antenna. Antenna are things that pick up signals. 
So when you see somebody, you don't think, ugh, you think, what could I do? That's God's antenna. That's Jesus' antenna. The woman who touched his garment. You, you read the story, Zacchaeus, so on and so on. When there was a need, he met it. He said, what can you do? What can I do for you? And the Samaritan comes along. Now, you need to understand what Samaritans were thought about. Um, a remnant of the, the old bit of history here coming in. You knew you'd get some history sometime this morning, didn't you? Um, the southern kingdom was Judah. The northern kingdom was Israel. The Israelites, the northern kingdom, were carted off to Assyria 700 years before Jesus. And then later, the Judah, the southern. They came back. That was the return from exile. The northerners never did. So the old northern kingdom of Israel based on Samaria, hence Samaritans, were regarded by the Jews as absolute rubbish. They hated them. They thought they were just second-class, second-rate people. So this Samaritan is walking in the midst of the southern kingdom of Judah. That's where he is. Very few Samaritans, as he traveled, the Bible tells us, isn't it? Being where he was was powerful enough But what does he do? And Jesus drives it home. There's a Samaritan on a southern kingdom road. And he goes to him. He bandages him. He pours oil and wine into his wounds. He puts him on his donkey. He carries him to an inn. He takes care of him. Even to the point of telling the innkeeper to keep a towel. I'll pay it when I get back. What Jesus is saying here is he could not do more. He even promises to come back. And and that's what the man did. Now, you can imagine this teacher of the law, Southern Kingdom man, a Samaritan. Good Samaritan in itself is a contradiction to him. Good Samaritan? No way. And yet Jesus picks that man to be the, the illustration of what he's talking about. The people that you loathe up there in the north who let God down and they, they didn't follow, they didn't come back and establish a kingdom. What? They're rubbish. And here is one of them. After two of your religious leaders versed in the word of God have walked past, this guy stops off and gets this guy on a horse and does everything he can for him. And when you come to the end, you get that crunch question. It's, it's a terrible question, isn't it? Which of these was the, you know, the, the good person? It's a bit like saying, you know, is it Mother Therese or Adolf Hitler? You know, I mean, it's that level of questioning. Which is the best guy? He can't even bear himself to say the Samaritan. He says the one who had mercy. He cannot say Samaritan. And you see, I think this is Jesus saying, quite simply, my friends, I want to drive a coach and horses through your ethics. I want to challenge you to the very depth of your being. Go and do likewise, he says. Now that doesn't mean, as I said at the beginning, that we literally take that parable as it is and do what he says, but we, we get the big meaning of what Jesus is saying. Uh, and we say, where is that neighbor? Let us start thinking in a new and fresh way. Some people argue, I think quite strongly, that the church will grow when it cares. 
the church will grow when it cares. Who is my neighbor? I'm going to invite you to think about that and not, oh, that's a, a wonderful concept. Because Jesus doesn't tell the story like that. He tells the story about a man caring for another man. And even that man that was bleeding to death in the gutter, as it were, may well have been a Jew. Who, if he was awake, would have thought, what's that Samaritan doing touching me? So Jesus is driving straight through a very strongly held value that would have existed at that time in first century. And saying, I don't want you to think about ethnic origin. I don't want you to think about race. I want you to think about need. I want you to think about love. I want you to think about care. I want you to think about the human race and your fellow human beings as those made in the image of God who I care about. And I want you to act accordingly. And that means I've got to go home and think about how I can put that into practice. And who oh, I walked past in the past and I need to go back to them and say, I'm sorry I did that. And you're not going to reach everybody. But bear in mind that this is a story of one man helping one other man. And that's what Jesus is asking of us. You see what my friend on the Mount of Beatitudes was saying? If you Christians live like this, you'd change the world. And I think he's asking of us today what that means in our neighbor network. To start by saying, yes, we love the Lord your God, the great commandment, with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. And we look up to a great God who we serve and we worship and we follow. But Jesus says to you and me this morning, I will not leave you there. Because there is somebody in your network, in your life, that maybe you can pick up a phone to, maybe you can invite round for a cup of tea and a hot cross bun, you know, and say hi. Work that I'm involved with at the moment with care is about loneliness. There's nine million people in our country who are lonely. We're trying to get a project together which is encouraging Christians like us to go and visit lonely people. Churches are beginning to do it through their local GP surgeries. GPs are saying to um, Christians, having checked them through, go and visit that person. Is that something that, dare I say this, and I'll probably never be asked to preach again, but I'll risk it. Rather than complaining about the state of our church or the state of this or the state of that, is he actually saying to us, because I did this for you, get off your backside and go and see somebody who needs your love. And quit complaining, it's a waste of time. We do it often because we've had too much practice. Let's go and find somebody who's not literally but figuratively lying in the road bleeding and say, let me give you a hand. Let me put you on my horse. 
Let me take you somewhere where you can find life. And let's bring them here, where they can hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and live a transformed life because of that. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he's after. And don't sit there and say, you can't do it. Because we all can. We all have a place where that could happen. If that's been too guilt-jerking, sorry. But that's what the passage says. That's what it says. And preachers, sometimes you, you get faced with a passage like this. I don't know how many times I've preached that before, but you, get, you think, I, I can't avoid what it says. That's what it says. And it would be far easier to preach it comfortably. But it ain't comfortable reading, is it? So let's see what we can do, one at a time, one by one, in God's strength, in God's power. Let's find a neighbor and put him on our horse. Should we do that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word is never irrelevant. Your word is always right to the point. Thank you so much for Jesus' way of doing this and way of dealing with that man who comes with a tricky question and gets a difficult answer. Lord, whatever this means for for each of us, I, I pray that we really won't go home thinking we should have done this years ago, but just to think of one name, one person, who perhaps we could pick up a phone to or whatever and do it in the name of Jesus. And I guess many of us are doing it already, and I thank God for so much compassion ministry that goes on in this place. And I praise God for everyone who does that. But Lord, if there's something that you're saying to us this morning, don't let us hold back. Let us go and do it in the name of Christ and to grow his kingdom and for his glory, we pray. In his name, amen.